Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith the Maphedon. Thanks for tuning in. It is Black History Month, a time to reflect on black achievement, past, present, and future. African Americans have contributed so much to this country and beyond, despite incredible obstacles. What better way to start this month scene than Governor Maura Healey's first proclamation to officially recognize February as Black History Month in the Commonwealth? February is Black History Month. This month and every month, we come together to honor black changemakers and innovators of the past and present. Black history is American history. It's filled with moments of pain, of perseverance, of overwhelming joy and profound love. On this first day of Black History Month, you have my word that I'll do everything in my power to break down the barriers holding back our black communities. And I've already directed my team to take a hard look at how we're centering equity across government. Our administration will be one that sees the dignity and worth of every person, one that values and protects black lives. And through it all, we'll be sustained by our love of community, for the Commonwealth, and for each other. Happy Black History Month. On Sunday, the streets of Chinatown came to life with bright colors and costumes to celebrate the Lunar New Year. The Chinese Lunar New Year is in full swing until February 1st. 2023 is the year of the rabbit, and BNN News is here in Chinatown to celebrate. Chinatown rung in the Lunar New Year, also known as Chinese New Year, with the Lively Lion Dance Parade on Sunday. The Lunar New Year lasts for two weeks between a new moon and the next full moon and the vibrant colors and traditional music brought the holiday to life. I love Chinese New Year because it's a time where you can spend time with family and have a whole bunch of fun. It's a time of celebration, time that for the families to get together, have the big meals, uh, just be with family. That's the key thing. Mayor Michelle Wu spoke about the importance of the Asian community coming together within the region. With all those in Chinatown who work to make this community strong every single day, it is a community that is important far beyond the city of Boston and really is a hub for our culture across the entire New England region. The Lunar New Year isn't just about celebrating the next 365 days, but setting new goals for the year to come, which is all connected to the Chinese Zodiac. We wish everyone good health and fortune for the year of the rabbit. According to the Chinese Zodiac, this year will be the year of resistance and strength. It will be a great year of achieving your goal and persisting your passions. Some residents shared their hopes for the new year of the rabbit. Stop the war in Ukraine. Um, Stop COVID. Stop all the diseases. Good vibes, um, positivity, um, bring the community together. The rabbit is the fourth zodiac animal of 12 in the Chinese zodiac. 2011 was the last year of the rabbit, and this year's water rabbit has the ability to turn around unfortunate events. For BNN News, I'm Faith Amaphidon, reporting from Chinatown. An update was sorely needed for the East Boston Police Station, and city leaders were excited to reveal a brand new facility right on the Chelsea River waterfront. The community room in East Boston's newest police station is a stunning space for connection, open to both residents and officers. It's got everybody talking. 
This is the newest resource for the entire community and we're so excited to be in this brand new building that finally meets the standards of what our officers deserve as their day-to-day -day working space, but also uh, a, a hub that community members can come use this community room, host meetings, build the partnerships and build the relationships and we heard a lot of that excitement from community members who've been working alongside BPD in this community already. After three years of building delays, there was nothing but smiles at the opening for the new District A7 facility. The $29.9 million investment features modern touches and sustainability-centered design, all to breathe new life into the East Boston Station. When you go from a space that maybe should almost been condemned to a, this beautiful space, I would imagine it, it would have a great impact on the morale. More importantly, you know, I, I talked a little bit about this is their home office, but more importantly, this is a home for the entire East Boston community. And I'm just so happy that the mayor you know, is committed to building these kind of spaces, sustainable spaces, where you know the community can come and meet the police where we are, and we can partner to solve a talk or, or just discuss any issue right here in a police building, as wonderful as this. As the first new complete district station in over 10 years, the station is a tremendous upgrade from the prior 69 Pear Street location, an upgrade all have been looking forward to since the October 2019 groundbreaking. This is going to do a lot to boost morale uh, for our police officers here in East Boston, who again have uh, been living in a substandard building on Meridian Street and now uh, get a state-of-the-art police station. This is the type of investment that our public safety officials deserve and the community deserves. So a really great day for East Boston and excited to check out the new building. The journey to affordable housing for all is an uphill battle, but organizers from City Life Vita Urbana are not giving up as they drew out over 300 people in downtown Boston, all for rent control. We all have a right to housing. We all have a right to housing. We all have a right to housing. We are standing up as tenants for rent control. On Saturday, the message ringing out from the State House steps was clear. Rent control now. We are here because we know communities are struggling on a day-to-day -day just to make ends meet. The price of housing is out of control and rents are rising when wages are not. We are seeing every day families being forced out of their homes and even their own communities. This is an injustice that we can no longer sit back and watch. This is about the survival of our people and our neighborhoods. Organizers of the rally, City Life Vita Urbana, are determined that state leaders understand the impact of gentrification. They believe corporate landlords are buying up affordable housing solely for profit-making, a move that's decimating black and brown communities throughout Boston. Unfortunately, we see these large corporate landlords coming into our communities and, and trying to flip buildings or just gouge people all the time. And what we tell them is that your right to make a profit, to make a dollar, should not impact our right to stay here, to live in a, a healthy home, an affordable home, the communities that we help build. We deserve to stay here more than you deserve to make a dollar. Protesters are calling for change in policy and accountability from city leaders in order to create stability in the housing market, protecting residents from unsafe housing and potentially homelessness. So this problem is not going to go away until we get rent control back. 
We need to lift that ban and bring it back because rents are being raised way beyond people's means. And if that keeps up, it's just a pipeline that's going to flush everybody out of their houses into gentrification, into homelessness, and we just can't have that. We can't build up the city of Boston and kick the tenants out that live here that's helped build it. Their goal? To create legislation that prevents landlords from increasing rent prices that exceed wage increases. Mayor Wu's recent proposal to cap rent increases at 10 percent is promising, but is it enough? What that means for the average working class family and person is that they can't keep up with rents. You have rent increases of over 10 percent a year, rent increases of, of 5, 6, 7 percent, when people's wages are going up at best 3 percent a year. And so it's not keeping up with people's wages. It's only making it harder and harder for families and working class people to be able to live, not, in, not just in our city anymore, but across our entire state. Massachusetts educators are reconsidering their methods of teaching, and they gathered earlier this week to discuss what changes to make in a post-pandemic world. Educators and school leaders from pre-elementary to higher ed gathered on Tuesday for the 10th annual Condition of Education in the Commonwealth event. The morning at Omni Parker House Hotel gave rise to discussion of new ideas from the Rennie Center for Education, Research and Policy that can be used right now to improve schools. With $2.9 billion of COVID relief school funding available, state educators cannot afford to continue old models of schooling. To fully support both students and teachers, the moment demands innovation and continued reflection. One of the reasons we're raising the questions of how can we change the design of school is that the pandemic made clear that sending all students to the same place at the same time and expecting them to learn the same material didn't make a lot of sense. Child development, individual students don't all move at the same pace, so we need more targeted, individualized approaches for students and more flexible ways of providing education to make sure that they all succeed. It's the only way that we can address the systemic challenges that exist in society that students have to overcome to become successful adults. Now more than ever, you know, it's important that we invest in our public system of education, both in the early years, K through 12, and higher education as well. When we think about the needs that we have, particularly coming out of the pandemic, we've seen a lot of the equity gaps get grow exponentially, and we need to really invest to make sure that our students are prepared to complete their secondary or, or K-12 education, but also to figure out what the pathway is going to be once they've completed and they move on to the post-secondary space, which is our primary focus. What we're attempting to do in our budget cycle in Boston, you know, really looking at expanding inclusion um, and really building on just a terrific agreement and partnership with the union to expand inclusion for all students in the Boston Public Schools, bilingual education, our equitable literacy. These are all really in support of students who have traditionally been marginalized, that we see this in the data, our black and brown students, our special education students, our multilingual learners. You know, we need to do much better than has been done before. Giving is a family affair for Rycall Enterprise, Inc., who for the second year in a row distributed new coats for those in need Saturday in Mattapan. This is Faith Maffedon with BNN News, and I'm reporting from Mattapan. We are minutes away from this year's new coat giveaway. As you can see, there's already a line building up. The excitement is real for winter coats this season.
Volunteers handed out thousands of winter jackets to ensure everyone in Boston can bundle up this year. The nonprofit Rycall Enterprise Inc. teamed up with Ocean State Joblot and Amazon, giving away more than 3,500 coats on Saturday at no cost to residents. Founder Tracy Rabb was inspired to create the company by the two most influential people in her life, her parents. My parents inspired me. Just watching them as I was growing up, how they embraced and just loved everyone. Their doors was always open. Anyone for anyone in need. Lovingly run by the Rab family, Right Call Enterprises' mission is to make sure every resident of Boston has the resources needed to stay above water in these trying times. Scott Rab spoke about generosity and how everyone has the ability to make a difference. If they don't need it, pass it on to somebody to do. You got a neighbor, you don't need a coat, give it to somebody to do. If you walk by somebody and you see them cold, Give it to them. Box by box, volunteers unloaded what seemed like endless black jackets. As the boxes diminished, the smiles grew. Perhaps from the relief of not having to worry about staying warm, especially with the below-freezing weekend ahead. Those present could also help themselves to non-perishable food items and toiletries. Torlia Washington from the Dimmick Center came to represent her clients who need winter resources, and she was grateful for the event. Most of the people that work in the field, we see that a lot of the clients need coats because we're in Massachusetts and, you know, it gets cold. Um, and there's just a lack of coats that's out there that's available for folks. And this is amazing. I can't say it enough that these coats are being offered to the clients and anybody else in the community that needs a coat. The giving continues with Rig Cole Enterprises. Faith Amaphidon with BNN News. Dr. Jim O'Connell has been working with the homeless community for 38 years. He's the founding physician of the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program, BHCHP, which now serves over 13,000 homeless persons each year in two hospital-based clinics and in more than 60 shelters and outreach sites in Boston. Dr. Jim joined us to discuss BHCHP and the new book, Rough Sleepers, by Tracy Kidder, which tells the story of Boston's homeless community and the compassion passionate efforts of Dr. Jim and his team to serve them where they are. Here's our conversation. Can you share with our viewers how your 38-year journey as a homeless healthcare advocate began and how has your program, the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program, grown over the years? I'm an entirely an accidental tourist in this. I was finishing my residency at Mass General Hospital. I was doing a residency in internal medicine. You know, wanted to go become an oncologist. And the city of Boston, Mayor Flynn, received a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, to a four-year grant, to try to get some way to integrate the care of homeless people into the mainstream of Boston's healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And the homeless people that got together with them to express what they wanted and how they wanted to be served, demanded a full-time doctor. They wanted continuity of care. Hmm. So uh, it was hard to find one back then. And my chief of medicine at Mass General, whose name was John Potts, and another wonderful mentor of mine who was at Mass General named Dr. Tom Durant, uh, called me into their office one afternoon and said, would I mind doing this for a year? And um, it was not at all in my plans. I was huh. really wanting to go on to a fellowship. So I literally, you know, 
felt a little conscripted because when your chief of medicine asks you a question, it's a, um, <laughs> a rhetorical question, and if you value your career, you better do it. So I took this on thinking it was a year of giving back, a year of doing good. And I went from Mass General, you know, the six blocks down the street to Pine Street and Clinic. That was my first night. I was worked at Long Island Shelter um, and started working. And there were about six of us, I think, in total in the program. Mm-hmm. Um, myself and a couple of nurse practitioners and some social workers. And we started out in what was the days when there was multi-drug tuberculosis in the shelters, the AIDS epidemic had uh, come into the homeless community and we were awash in just trying to take care of people. And over the years, we've been fortunate enough to work with the shelters as partners with the state, particularly the city as really wonderful partners and the hospital community, which in the neighborhood health center community so that we've been able to sort of grow up with a lot of support from all of them. And we now have our Healthcare for the Homeless program has grown from that to, I think we have about 600 folks working with us now. It's a mm-hmm. citywide program um, with a you know two hospital bases, where our main base is at Boston Medical Center, but as well as Mass General, where I tend to spend most of my time caring for street folks. Um, but then we have shelters, uh, clinics in all of the shelters, adults and families, essentially all of them. Uh, and we have, um, we have, because homeless people asked us to do this, we started back in 1985 what was called the Medical Respite Unit. Right. I had no idea what that meant, but it was homeless people saying when we doctors sent them out of the hospital after they've just been really ill, usually you go home with a lot of support and a bed to be in and visiting nurses and home health aides, but homeless people did not have that. So they would go back to the shelters or the streets. So they asked us to set up what is essentially a step-down hospital where people can come out of the hospital. We can provide 24-hour nursing and doctor care and tend to their needs while they're, they continue to recover. So we have 124 beds of respite care now at our Barbara McGinnis house, which is our main one, and our Stacy Kirkpatrick house. Um, and that's kind of our program. It's been just, you know, we've been blessed to be living and working in it state like Massachusetts and a city like Boston, which really, you know, has been concerned about the welfare of homeless people. The novel Rough Sleepers, written by journalist Tracy Kidder, was actually published earlier this month on January 10th. It's currently a New York Times bestseller, and the novel follows you and your colleagues at BHCHP as you attended to the needs of the homeless population of Boston. I'm curious, what was it like to have Tracy enter your world, not only just to tell your story, but the stories of the population that you were serving? Uh, it was um, surprising and kind of, we were incredulous when Tracy came out on the van one night and said he'd love to hang out with us for a while. <laughs> um, and it's always a little difficult to have, you know, someone come because it's a relatively intimate um, setting. And uh, just to full disclosure, Roof sleep is a, is a name we sort of use, it's an old English term, for the people that sleep outside. And most of our people sleeping on the streets and in the alleys much prefer to be called a rough sleeper than they do a street person or something like that. So we've kind of adopted that name. Mm. But I've been privileged to work, as, as part of my job, to work a couple nights a week on the van, the Pine Street Inn van, which goes out every night from 9 at night to 7 in the morning, 6 to 5 in the morning. You know, and they are really the heroes of this story, the folks that are on that van every single night of the year. I think Boston is the only city in the country to have that. 
Um, but anyway, I was able to go on the van, which serves soup and fat, uh, blanket, it gives blankets, soup, sandwiches, stuff like that, clothing to people outside. And I could then, as I'm serving, so to say, I'm also a doctor. And my, there's my way to get to know folks out on the street. Hmm. So Tracy came out one night for a whole host of other reasons and happened to watch what was going on. And as you probably know, Tracy is the um, is a really, um, Kind of he tells stories really well, but he had told the story of Paul Farmer in Mountains Beyond Mountains. And he had seen what healthcare looked like in Haiti and countries far away. And he was, I think, taken aback by one learning about the courage of people living on the streets, what they've been through, and two, learning about the how right in the shadows of our great medical institutions, of which I'm very proud, mm. we have people suffering the same health disparities as he saw in Haiti and other places. So he became fascinated with that paradox and the contrast and um, just basically hung out with us for about five or six years. Wow. Um, became part of our team and, um, you know, and most of the folks on the streets got to know him really well. He took whole lot of time with them um, and you know what we our initial skepticism kind of evaporated in his just becoming part of us wow and as you said he he spent five years with your team and I'm wondering having lived it and then seeing the story in print uh, how did it how did it land did it feel any different was there a moment or a story from that time that had a different weight having read what he wrote about that time? Well, I think, I mean, uh, my, my first thought is it's kind of embarrassing to have somebody write about things you've said over the past five years, because I kept thinking, you can say some pretty silly stuff <laughs> in a five-year period. Um, but I think he was kind in that way. But it, I, I felt a little, you know, honestly, I felt a little caught because I work, you know, I work in, in this amazing team taking care of people on the street and in the context of the remarkable people at the Boston Healthcare and Homeless Program, our doctors and nurses and psychiatrists and social workers. But Tracy was telling a story mostly through my own eyes and our own team's eyes. So whereas mm. I thought he captured homeless people incredibly well, he's a, a remarkable storyteller. I have to admit to feeling a little uncomfortable at being the eyes through which he saw much of this. So I, you know, I had a hard time reading anything about myself anyway. Um, and reading a book like this was particularly hard. But in truth, I, I, once I got used to it, I'm really grateful that he took the time to really share the stories of the people we see. Hmm. And what do you hope that readers take away from Rough Sleepers? Homelessness is a very complicated uh, societal tragedy, I think. Uh, and the longer I've been in this, and it's now you know, it's been my full-time job for 38 years, um, the more complicated it becomes to me. And I think what I hope people take from this is, one, that people become homeless almost never by their own fault. They're usually the victims of broken systems, and they are they have vulnerabilities. And the system, um, they end up then on the streets or in the shelters chronically. And then when you hear their stories, you realize that these are folks who were dealt just a terrible hand in life. That mm -hmm. the stories of trauma, the stories of poor schools, the stories of foster care, you know. Um, dealing with disabilities while you're in school that weren't attended to, all of those things funnel into an end result of somebody being homeless. And then the solutions, um, if uh, I hope it will come through the solution. We can't solve this problem without housing, so we have to get housing. But I think the other side of that is housing is just the platform on which you then have to be, make sure people have the services they need, have the um, supports they need, the community, the hope, all of the other things that I think are going to help us to 
as a society to uh, solve this problem. And why is consistent care key to people experiencing homelessness? The, the people, the homeless people that put us together that I mentioned in the beginning, um, and by the way, on our board of directors, we're a you know, $70 million a year program now, and on our board of directors, we have a number of homeless people who are you know, basically our bosses, and it's been very, very good for us to mm-hmm. basically work for the people we serve. However, what they wanted out of our program, when you asked them, was continuity of care. They wanted, they wanted the same kind of doctors and, and nurses and teams that most of expect that you can call. If you're sick on a Friday, you call and someone you know answers. And if you're sick three months later, the same people are going to be there. And so much of the drift of our program was how to attract really good you know, clinicians and support people who are going to stick with this. And I think most homeless people will say, when I'm sick and I go to the hospital, I really want someone I know there, because that's when I feel very frightened. So our, the, the whole thrust of our program has been to get to know people, earn their trust. Sometimes that takes days, sometimes that takes years. But once you earn their trust, it's remarkable what you begin to learn about folks and how they, with that trust, you can begin to have a pretty healing relationship with someone. And I think that's the lesson we've all learned. Sticking with people has been really the most important part. So important. And how does BHCHP's approach to health care uh, differ from other providers? And how has it led to the success and positive outcomes of uh, the homeless population? I, I learned when I first got to the shelters that nothing happens when you try to take care of homeless people unless you've got time and you can sit and earn their trust. You have to be present, you have to be consistent, you have to have cups of coffee, you have to share your story with them. And that takes time. And when I was in the you know, when I was training at MGH, when I was a student, you know, we were we were judged basically on how efficient we were. You know, you really need to, in the 10 to 15 minutes you're given, get to the main issues. Right. And I learned much to my chagrin, all those skills were relatively useless when you got to a homeless population who's been scarred by their, you know, their, their encounters with our, what I put was good system. So I think homeless people teach us a lot about how our healthcare system sometimes it fails. And one of them is we needed time. You know, we, can, we can't be productive the way I would have been in the back at Mass General. Sometimes it takes you an hour. Sometimes it takes you two hours to do what you've got to do for the folks that are suffering from this really terrible burden of co-occurring medical and psychiatric and substance use disorders. And you need to have a team and you need to stay consistent with people. And that's, I think, a lesson that we probably want to apply back to our mainstream things. I certainly wish the doctor I go to visit had a lot more time to talk to me than they're given. And hmm. I think the doctors that I'm talking about, who are my colleagues, would also appreciate more time to get to know us. But this, you know, when you go to a population like homeless people and other vulnerable ones, time becomes probably as important as your skills at diagnosing. Thank you for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 p.m. and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. And make sure to check out our BNN HD Xfinity Channel 1072. You can also hear us on the radio Fridays at 6.30 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. and Monday through Thursday at 7.30 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. For BNN News, I'm Faith the Maffedon. I'll see you next Friday.